James Bible Study, Part 15, Overview, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. I must confess that I am not reading off of a PDF of the Bible study for this Sunday. Instead, we will be talking about the PDF and what is there, mainly because I have to use a chart. <laughs> In our overview of the book of James, you'll notice that I have a big honkin' chart of all five chapters cataloging the various commands that St. James gives in his epistle. Why is this? Because the vast majority of his epistle is a didactic one. Sure, there are brief statements concerning God's grace being saved through faith in Christ, but almost all of this book is imperative and instructive. In that order, command, explain, repeat. St. James assumes that his audience is already Christian. They're already catechized into the faith, so they understand the far more important matters of the gospel, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection, etc. So his task is really to bring congregants to better harmony with each other and to ensure that they are all pleasing to God. So as I chart in the PDF that you can find at verylutheran.biz, 32 of the 108 verses in the epistle of St. James are commands, approximately one-third of the entire book. The rest of the text, most of it is, while well, explaining why Christians should obey these commands, if not explaining why Christians should be doing godly things in the first place, you know, James 2, verses 14 through 26. Now, there's a danger here. This could lead to despairing of the epistle, not wanting to read it very often, or rejecting it outright. We've all heard from our Catholic friends that Luther, in his earlier years, appeared to reject the epistle of James, calling it an epistle of straw. But even he eventually just came around to saying, listen, this is Bible, I'm going to preach it. We have to understand it correctly. So even he saw the epistle of James as something which must be grappled with. One could be confused by the flurry of imperatives, and maybe you could be confused as to what exactly it is that St. James really wants from us. So we organized the commands in the chart to help clear this up, and we organized them further using highlighter colors because I can't help myself into distinct kinds of commands, certain topics. For instance, there are four distinct commands given regarding steadfastness. Chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Chapter 1, verse 4, Let steadfastness have its full effect. Chapter 5, verse 8, having two commandments, you also be patient and establish your hearts. The author extols and commends the virtue of steadfastness in believers, so he commands it. He wants us to stubbornly hold on to faith in spite of various trials. And in order to get that fruit from believers, that means giving instructions on what to do. 
So count it all joy. You should be seeing God's hand. The word there translated joy is grace. It's grace. We are to see God doing something in our lives in spite of the trial going on. Let steadfastness have its full effect. We should recognize that this is for our sanctification. Be patient. So be patient. Establish your hearts. Do all of these things so that you can establish strong, steadfast faith. In the epistle, there are seven of these types of commands or commands toward something. There are commands toward steadfastness, commands concerning our relationship to God, namely submission to him, to status and relationships, how we see ourselves and others. There are commands concerning speech, and there's a lot of them there. There are commands concerning internal and external actions. I'll explain that in a bit. And of course, in chapter 5, he talks about corporate devotion and prayer, which is good order in the church. And there are a few commands that are more or less calls for attention. Like when he says, do not be deceived in chapter 1, verse 16, or know this in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, come now, you rich, in chapter 5, verse 1. When he does these things, it is a sign that St. James is aware that he is writing scripture. He's telling us to focus, telling us to pay attention to what we are reading in his epistle. But I don't really get into too much detail on those because it's more or less self-evident. Let's talk about some of these themes here regarding his commandments and something of a general summary as to what could be given. We already brought up steadfastness, but he also talks about submission to God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Draw near to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In a word, this is all about submission to God and not the kind of submission that is just a slave obeying its master, but more about a real relationship with God. Chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Hey, you should believe and hold that God has things to give you, that he wants to give you, and you should ask him for these things that he offers. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Be penitent. Realize that he's bigger, stronger, better. He is the king. You are the servant, truly. But at the same time, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Let us thank our Lord. With all of these commandments, he's characterizing our relationship with God and our submission to him as deeply personal. This is why he talks so much about prayer and repentance and going to God for mercy. But he also talks about our personal status and our relationships concerning others. Ultimately, this culminates in general calls for humility on our part and generosity toward others. 
So in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. If you don't see yourself accurately to what you really are, if you don't see yourself the way God sees you, you are going to fall into the trap of worldly estimations, which is why he tells the rich to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. Meanwhile, he also tells us, don't show partiality to the rich man. Don't judge them according to worldly standards, but be generous toward all. Hence the mentions of charity in the first and second chapters. What is pure and undefiled religion before God? Now, he also spends a lot of time talking about speech. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Not many of you should become teachers. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Do not speak evil against one another. Chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Say this. Chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Speech and the wisdom behind it is a major theme in James. This is why he talks about prayer quite a lot. Why he talks about our temptations to slander one another or harm one another through speech. Are we boasting? Or do we have the good sense to keep that tongue in our mouths well caged? Or else, you know, our foot is going to join us there, putting our foot in our mouth. He also talks about internal and external action. What do I mean by this is, well, the entire epistle is an advocacy of an active Christian life. We are to want to be sanctified. We should want our sin removed. We should want to be better people than we once were. And the Christian, being uncomfortable with any sin in his or her life, should thus live in penitent faith and do things conducive to that penitent faith. Now, this is not the performative penitence of the monastic. It's not beating yourself up or starving yourself to death to purge wickedness through pain. But instead, the penitent faith espoused in James is an earnest desire to please God, an active rejection of one's sins, and an eagerness to do things conducive to our vindication as Christians. In other words, St. James wants us to be pietists. Now, there are a few verses about corporate prayer and devotion. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 16 say, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Now, I could have organized many of these commands into its own distinct category of prayer. But St. James wants our motivations to bring us to prayer. He wants our attitudes, our hearts to lead us to do good works and to pray and to relate to God. It's a book full of relationship. But insofar as the congregation gathers together to pray, he does have guidance on that. 
If somebody is sick, let us anoint the sick. If we have sinned, let us confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. It is corporate devotion and prayer for the sake of the other, an expression of agape love. He effectively declares that prayer is a means of loving one's neighbor. Now with all these commands, there are many explanatory themes that he has to give us. For instance, we already mentioned the higher and lower wisdom. Your speech will be motivated by what is in your heart. Is it the wisdom that comes from God? Or is it the wisdom of the devil who wants you to be a greedy jerk, a selfish individual? He also speaks briefly but powerfully about the law of liberty. Christians do what Christians do because they are Christians, not in order to be Christians. We make meaningful choices with our newly freed will, and the writer would have us preserve that liberty. Such is the dynamic in the Christian life. We are called to preserve that liberty, lest we fall into sin and become enslaved to it. Or on the flip side, to become a slave to the old law, which makes a return in the Christian's life to accuse them. The second use of the law as it were. Now finally, he does emphasize action. Word and deed permeate through St. James's epistle. And deeds, charitable deeds, prayer for one another, helping one another in hard times, all of these vindicate the Christian as well as sanctifying him. He doesn't deny that Abraham was justified before God by faith alone. After all, it would be silly of him to cite a verse where Abraham is justified by faith and then cite another verse where Abraham is justified through his works, as though God justified Abraham initially by faith, and then Abraham apostatized, and he had to re-justify himself before God. No, St. James is not positing that Abraham was temporarily in a state of mortal sin and had to be re-justified. That is silly. To the contrary, Abraham's justification by his faith and works justified himself to himself and to others. Facing God, or Coram Deo, we are justified by faith alone. St. James not only does not deny that fact, he asserts it. But at the same time, we are justified or vindicated by our faith and our works to ourselves and others. This means that our works do play a role in the assurance of salvation, and they do play a role in the congregational life. Somebody coming into your congregation and saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I believe in the three creeds and I love the Bible, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, over and over and over again, means basically nothing if there are no good works whatsoever to back that up. 
it demonstrates that your faith is a living one rather than being stuck in notitia or a census. But from the last two verses of the book of James, we see his motivations for all of this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He is saying to these believers reading his epistle, listen, if you bring someone back, God uses you to save that person's soul. If they were backsliding and you went up and warned them, then God saves them. That's one of the reasons that St. James is so didactic in this epistle. His main concern is salvation for as many people as possible, especially those who are in the church but leave the church but need instruction on to be legitimate believers, etc. and so forth. In encouraging Christians everywhere to be zealous for good works, to speak plainly but with higher wisdom, to follow the law of liberty rather than, say, the Mosaic law or the law of sin, people end up being saved, not because they're doing such good works, but because it leads to them actively bringing people back to the Christian faith. May we, too, then, be Christians who are zealous for our Lord and appreciative of, even guarding the law of liberty which he grants to us at our baptisms. Amen and Amen.